Hi everyone, um, my name is Singh and I'll be doing the Bible reading for us today. Uh, we'll be reading from Malachi 1.6 to 2.9. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and one of the hospitality team will pass you one. Um, if you are getting one of the church Bibles, it'll be page 669. If you don't have a Bible at all and want one, you can just talk to a hospitality team and they can actually gift you a Bible, so feel free to do that. Um, as Christians, we believe that God doesn't ever change, like he's the same yesterday, today and forever. And so that means that when we come to the Bible and we read from the Old Testament, which we are today, or from the New Testament, we can know that he's the same God, his character doesn't change and what we read, even though sometimes it's hard to understand or swallow, um, yeah, it's true about God and it also teaches us how we should be relating to him. So let's read from Malachi 1.6. A son honours his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due me? If I am a master, where is, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled foods on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals a sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is a cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And now, you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen, and if you do not resolve to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not resolved to honour me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this warning, so that my covenant with Levi, Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in, on his, in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way, and by your teachings have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. 
it's, it's generally true in life, isn't it, that um, there are times that we do things or uh, go into things half-heartedly. Uh, like when you're a kid, you're, you're asked or you're forced to do something by your parents and you, you really don't enjoy it, but you'll do it because you know you have to. Uh, when I was young, believe it or not, I might not look the type. I have stubby little fingers uh, and I sometimes sound tune deaf when I'm singing, but I learned piano. I learned piano for eight years of my life. Can you believe that? I could say I'm a piano virtuoso after eight years, but I'm not. I'm terrible at piano. I learned it for, from, I think, when I was seven years old to 15 years old, me and my younger sister, Grace, if you believe it, and we both had to learn. I remember sitting behind the piano every Wednesday afternoon from 4.30 to 5 p.m. every Wednesday, uh, and, you know, I'd learn my scales, I'd learn classical sheet music, and I'd sight read, you know, I'd do all that stuff that I was required to do. But I was the worst student. Uh, Serena, if she's here, she's, she's a music teacher, and she would hate me if I was one of her students. And, uh, I mean, you know, I think I wouldn't be surprised if she even gave up on me halfway, because I just had no motivation for it. Now, I remember my piano teacher, he was really patient. He was tall, a tall man with round black glasses. He had a mole on his cheek. He had these slender, elegant fingers. He was generally composed. He always wore a button-up shirt when he came to our house, and he would always happily accept a cup of tea and these lemon cream biscuits that my mom would give him. And I remember each week, I'd reluctantly go into the living room and just think to myself, I really don't want to do this. I'd sit in front of the piano and I'd play every week for those eight years, not knowing what I was doing, but hoping that that rote learning and memorizing the scales and everything was, was going to do it for me, that I could just pass it off, that I knew what I was doing, that I knew that I could play piano. I tried to do the bare minimum. You know how with anything, piano, um, sport, you have to practice. I did the bare minimum. I probably played half an hour before he showed up every week just to show that I sort of did something that week, just to pass it off. It, it sucked. I really didn't enjoy it. And I swear, I don't know if you, you've ever taught anything, but you can tell when someone doesn't practice. I swear my piano teacher saw right through it every week. But I'm thankful. I'm thankful that I learned something at least. I think I, I mastered an easy version of Thorough Lease by Beethoven. But I feel bad for my parents. They invested all this money into me for what? A reluctant kid that would rather play video games after school, that would rather uh, read comic books than sit in front of the piano and learn an instrument that I just didn't understand. I went into it every week with this half-hearted attitude, but deep down, really, I just didn't care for the instrument. And isn't that what we do in life sometimes? We do these things with this inauthenticity because we know we should do it, but we're, our hearts aren't really behind it. We'll do it because we know we should do it, we need to do it, perhaps. And we put on this facade, we put on this smile, and we make it look like you know, we're the real deal. And we're, we're keen on this. We know we should clean our rooms, for example, but we just chuck everything under the, under the bed or into the closet and make it look like it's clean. Uh, the, we, we go to work and we, we pretend we're working really hard, but behind all our windows there's these chat boxes and we're just chatting to our friends online during work hours. And we put on this facade hoping that people will think we're genuine, that we're authentic, scratched beneath the, the surface, and we're just doing it really half-heartedly. I mean, we all know that, don't we? We all have done that in life, haven't we? And as children, we generally grow up, and as adults, we generally look around and go, actually, I don't actually need to do that anymore. I don't need to play piano. I can be free from those things. And we do things more with our hearts because we actually believe and understand why we do things as an adult. But generally growing up, we, we still do that, don't we? And even as adults, we still do that. But I wonder for Christians, for many of us here today who are part of the church, 
We're not immune to this either, are we? How often do we come to God with that sort of inauthentic, half-hearted worship? Do we come to God with that, uh, you know, passing off as Christians, having a facade that we tick all the boxes? Deep down, though, our hearts aren't aligned with God, though, that we're just going through the motions. We just want to appear Christian. And when we look at this passage, it really puts a mirror to our souls, doesn't it? It challenges us today to consider how do we view our relationship? How do we view our worship of God? What does true worship look like? What is authentic worship? You know, it's, it's, is it just merely a religious process, a, you know, a, a ticking of, of checkboxes that need to be done, or is it a vibrant, living, responsive relationship to our God, to our good and great God? Now, for some of us here who aren't Christian, welcome. But my prayer is that you'll see today why Christians care about how we worship. And that you'll see the God who is worthy of our worship. In our section today, Malachi turns us to the hearts of the people and the priests here in the Old Testament and how they respond to God and his love for them. And if you need to remember there's context to this. If you were here last week, you'll remember where this is in the timeline of history, especially in Israel's history, God's people in the Old Testament. You've you got to know the context, otherwise none of this will make sense here in chapter 1 and 2. But keep your Bibles open so you can just keep seeing where I'm going to refer to that was read for us, that Bible reference, chapter 1, 6 to 2, 9. And you'll see that last week we heard about God's love for us, God's love for his people, that he chose these people amidst all the tribes and uh, amongst them, Israel were his treasured, chosen people. We heard that last week. We've got to remember context that they've just come out of their own lockdown. They've come out of their own exile. They've come out of their home. They're coming home to their city in Jerusalem, but it's not the same. Things aren't the same. They themselves, they doubt God's goodness in their lives, and they rebuild this, this temple for God. That's what happens in the Old Testament. Out of exile, they come back and they rebuild this temple. But compared to the older temple, the grand temple of Solomon, back in, the, uh, back in Kings and everything, you'll read about it, uh, this Solomon that built in Malachi's time here, it was just this measly small thing. It was a place where they just set it up so they could worship God there. That's where God dwells in the temple. Um, but it's really just a small, measly little building. And it's really what's reflected in how they worship God. The way they see God is how they see this temple. But let's see it. In chapter 1, verse 6, that was read by Singh for us. Let's read again. If you have your Bibles, follow along. A son, a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. You ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Down to verse 14, it says, Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So God comes, you know, guns blazing here in chapter 1, and he says, look at me, don't you know who I am? Look at what you're offering to me. Did you, know, did you pick up the, the references to how he calls himself? The Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, that's how Malachi addresses him. The Lord of hosts. It's a grand name. It's a holy name. He's the sovereign creator. And he slams Israel. He says, you guys wouldn't diss your father, right? You wouldn't diss your master, 
you'd bring them respect. How are you respecting the Lord Almighty? They bring contempt to his name. What does contempt mean? You guys know what contempt means, right? It means it's, they're treating him as something that's unworthy. It's not worth how much it should be worth. It's unworthy. That's contempt. They bring contempt to his name. We've got to see that, right? This, this is the ancient Middle East when this is happening, right? Around 450 BC. And your name means something serious. It means your character. It defines your character, your name. It's a big deal. They bring contempt to his name. They disrespect them. How have they done that? Well, Malachi tells us they give these offerings on the altar of God. And these offerings are sick and diseased animals. The ones that you're going to chuck out. They're meant to function as sacrifices offered to God as a way of thanksgiving, but instead it shows contempt and disrespect. Right? Treating someone as less worthy as they should be. See what they do. They offer sick animals. They, they think that's all God is worth. They think God isn't worth their healthy, happy, choicest animals. He only gets the sick ones. That's a huge problem. It's a huge problem because it's firstly a disobedience of the law that's given to Israel, right, in the Old Testament. You go back to Leviticus 22. I've got it on the screen for us. I'm just going to read from uh, verse 21, halfway down. When anyone brings from the herd or flock a fellowship offering to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or as a free will offering, it must be without defect or blemish to be acceptable. Do not offer to the Lord the blind, the injured, or the maimed, or anything with warts or festering or running sores. Do not place any of these on the altar as a food offering presented to the Lord. So outright disobedience. This is in, in Deuteronomy 15. You can read something like that as well. It's a law given to Israel, God's people back then, to obey. And what are they doing? Outrightly disobeying. Not only disobeying, it's disrespectful. He says, would you do that with your governor? Would you offer them the sick, lame animal in your house? Is he worthy of that type of respect, disrespect? Imagine if you got invited to your boss's home, right? He invites you over for a nice dinner, and you thought, oh, it might be polite to bring something. And you open your pantry, and there's this, there's this expensive bottle of wine on the top shelf, and you're thinking, you look at it, and you're like, I'm going to actually keep that for myself. It's, you know, it's really safe for a special occasion. I'm not going to bring it to my boss's home. And so you think, okay, I don't have anything to eat. You're walking out, and you see something on your counter, and you think, oh, this will do. I don't know what it might be. Maybe something glitters in the corner of your eye and it's one of those Woolworths Ushis, you know, and you think, oh man, he might actually appreciate it. It might be worth something. I'm going to give it to him since I don't need it anyways. It's your trash. You bring it to your boss's home. How, what would he think? He would accept it out of... No, he probably wouldn't accept it out of politeness. He would think something of you after that, wouldn't he? It's trash. It doesn't cost you anything. It's not, it's not your first pick. And that's for Israel. They bring the lamb with the broken leg. They bring the, the sheep that's got rabies. They, the things that they don't want anyway. They're leftovers. That's what they're offering to God. And the idea is to bring a sacrifice as an offering to God, one of, the, one of thanksgiving, one that God is worthy of. But do you see what they think about God? What is he worthy of? He's worthy of their, of their crap, isn't, isn't he? The, the whole idea of a sacrifice is it's meant to cost us something. When you make a sacrifice, it should hurt a little bit, right? When you make a sacrifice in life, it will be a bit of a burden. It might affect your finances, your livelihood, your energy, your work. But it's a sacrifice you're willing to make. A sacrifice you're willing to give because of the person you're offering the sacrifice to. Isn't that true? It's so easy to think we're making sacrifices when it doesn't actually cost us anything. We do this in life, don't we? We give our old clothes to charity, chuck in the charity bin, and we think, oh man, I'm so generous. But they're the clothes that you don't wear anyways. They're the clothes that you're going to throw out anyways. They're just getting mold in the back of your closet. 
I had a, a friend in Sydney, and my pastor actually in Sydney, tell me uh, this one time at church. Uh, I don't know about ch- you if you've been in church circles long enough, but church always gets donations. And uh, the church needed a donation of a fridge because the fridge had died and they needed a fridge in the church. So a call out was made. Someone donated their fridge. It was a 20-year-old fridge on its last legs. It was so noisy, it sounded like it was going to break. But they donated it. And, you know, it could have been generous. It could have been all that they had and they were giving away their last bit of item. I don't know. But it was essentially trash. And the church was too polite to reject it. They kept it for about six months. They couldn't throw it out until someone walked in and said, this, this fridge is trash. <laughs> I'm going to buy a church a new fridge. And, and someone in their church donated a new fridge, which is generous. But that's often the case, isn't it? We give our second best to God. We give our leftovers to God. When we make sacrifices, it should, we should feel something. The very meaning of sacrifice is it's going to cost you something, something that you, you, you wouldn't usually let go of. Parents, you sacrifice time and energy, don't you, for your children. You love your children, they're worthy of the sacrifice. Spouses, in relationships, you sacrifice for your loved ones, don't you? You sacrifice for your family. We sacrifice our, our personal time. We sacrifice our finances to support causes we believe in. We sacrifice energy to our careers or our hobbies because we think they're worth it. I know a lot of people who sacrifice sleep late at night so they can play their video games because their video games are worth it. I'll make sacrifices for it. Sick and diseased animals cost the the people nothing. It wasn't a sacrifice. It's so half-hearted, isn't it? It's so inauthentic. They're thinking, well, God, he's a small God in a small temple. He doesn't really care. He'll be right with these small offerings. That's all he's worth. For Israel, the people, God wasn't worth their best. Their sacrifices is a reflection, isn't it, of their hearts and how they view God. God is a small God. This is all he needs. Malachi, he wants the people to know there's a problem. But there's also a problem not just with the people, but with the priests as well. From chapter 2, it says this. Follow along. And now you priests, it says, this this warning is to you. If you do not listen, and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them, because you have not resolved to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung, the crap from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. Down to verse 7, for the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I've caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways, but I've shown partiality in matters of the law. Right? So that's the end of our reading. The very leaders of the church, the priests, they were meant to model holiness. They were meant to model the law of God to the people. They were the mediator between God and the people. They were announcing blessings on the people, but God says, your blessings on the people, they're cursed. You as a leader are cursing the people by faking it. You as leaders, you called, you, 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 you've not called people to repent. Instead, you accept these sick animals onto the altar. You want to offer me crap? Well, how about I smear crap on your face? Sounds savage, doesn't it? Maybe because my language is savage. But he should be, right? He should be angry about this. You're giving me, you're giving me your trash. How about I smear trash on your face? They've disrespected God. They think they're worshipping him, but they're just giving their leftovers. 
And these priests, they've got the responsibility to be leaders who serve the people, who point the people to God and God's goodness. And last week, what did we hear? God's love. They're meant to point people to God's love. And so to come before God with the law is to come before God with everything you have, to give your best. But they're leading the people into this false, fake, inauthentic, half-hearted worship. You see, he mentions Levi. He's one of the forefathers of Israel whose line was chosen to be the priesthood, the line of Levi. And through the Levites, uh, they'd be the ones who were given the responsibility to accept offerings, perform sacrifices on behalf of the people, to ask God for forgiveness. But these Levites, these priests, they'd strayed so far away from God. They'd strayed so far away from the covenant given to them. They'd basically made themselves the authority. And they'll accept sick animals even. And they'll say, oh, wonderful. God will happily accept this. God bless you. What does God say? He says, your blessings are cursed. How dare you lead my people away from truth? How dare you lead them to stumble in their faith? You see, with God, he's not begging the people to give them sacrifices. He says, you have not resolved to honor me. God desires and is worthy of worship, not our scraps. He's worthy of our hearts. And see, the priests, the leaders, should know that more than anyone else. And see, what's most likely going on during this period in history is that Israel, they've come out of exile and they're looking at the other nations. And the other nations are worshipping their deities, their gods, and they're treating God like he's some sort of small local tribal deity as well. A small god that lives in a small temple. But Malachi, again and again, he quotes God and calls him what? The Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. He is greater than any other god or deity. He is above all and rules over all. He doesn't need us. He doesn't even need our sacrifice. He's not lonely. He's not desperate for friendship. He says in, in 1 verse 10, he'd rather shut the temple doors. He'd rather shut the temple doors because he sees no pleasure in having his people come to him in this half-hearted worship. It echoes in, in Psalm 50 verse 9. I've got this on the screen as well. It says this, I have no need of a bull from your stall or a goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Why does he care? But he cares about our hearts, doesn't he? They're not making offerings of animals to somehow earn mercy. They're not trying to calm his wrath like other religions or tribes would be doing it during this time. They're called to offer their best sacrifices out of a thankful heart. The priests and the people, what are they doing? They're showing contempt to God, aren't they? They think he is unworthy of their best. They give him the dregs instead of thinking, God, you know, I don't need this, you can have it. God says, shut the door. He'd rather close the temple down. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need their leftovers. But, he points, but the point God wants to make to the people and to the priests is your half-hearted, inauthentic worship is not worship at all. Friends, this is, this is damning, isn't it? And if we read it alone without the context, it sounds like this God is some angry, vengeful God. But we read last week, didn't we? God says to his people, I've always loved you. I've always cared for you. And this is how you show respect. This is how they worship. The curses, are they're deserving of those curses. They go through the motions. Yeah, I'll go to temple and I'll offer up an animal for sacrifice, but it's all just a facade, isn't it? They really don't care about God's honor, and deep down, they really don't know or even care about the God they worship. They're treating God just like any other tribe would do. I'm going to give this food to God because God needs me. God needs sustenance. I'm going to offer this animal to him on the altar. 
uh, then I'll be in God's good books. Their actions, the actions of the people and of the priests, they show us what? It shows us their view of themselves. They view themselves greater than God. They'd reserve the best sacrifices for their own table than for God's table. They'd rather worship themselves and their own glory, believe that they're more worthy rather than honor and revere His name and show Him contempt instead. Friends, in, Christian, in Christianity, what we call this is sin, isn't it? That God isn't worthy of our worship, that God isn't worthy of being our first love, that God isn't worthy of being our first priority of life, that we have a small view of God and that God isn't Lord overall. That is at the heart of sin, isn't it? And it's so easy for us. I mean, we'll happily share. We're Christians. We go to church every week. And we'll go through the motions, won't we? But when we reflect on our hearts, who is at the center? Isn't it true we want God to revolve around us? We want to be at the center? Rather than our lives revolve around God. We've all got to admit it to some extent, don't we? Sin exists in all of our hearts. At the heart of sin, it isn't doing naughty or bad things. It's rejecting God as God. We're human, and we're naturally self-centered. Hands down, we'd rather worship ourselves and put ourselves on the throne than worship God. And even for some of us here who might be at church every week, who might serve regularly, who might go through all the motions, the question remains, are we giving God true worship? Or is it half-hearted? Is it inauthentic? A facade? Friends, I think we all fall short. And for Israel, who, like us, fail to give God worship that he's worthy of, we need the perfect sacrifice, don't we? We need the perfect priest to lead us. Now, I know a lot of you guys like me as your pastor. Thank you. But I'm not the perfect pastor. I'm not going to be the perfect mediator between God and, and you. That's, that's not my job. We need someone to make us holy before God. We need a sacrifice that's going to be the perfect sacrifice, an unblemished, perfect lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice that we can have that's found in Jesus. And friends, if you're new to church in Christianity, and if you've been gone, or if you've been going to church for a long time, you know, I want you to hear this. God has loved us, and he has saved us, not by our own works or the sacrifices you make for God. He saved us through his own initiative, through his grace, by his love, through the giving, the sacrifice of his son Jesus. That's the truth we need to hold on to. Whether we've been in church for a long time or we're fresh as here, no mere animal sacrifice is going to be good enough for God. You can do all the right things, you can tick all the right boxes, but if your heart isn't behind it, does it please God? I can't just stand here and say, try to do more and God will be pleased. It doesn't work that way. We'd be no better than some tribal religion treating God like a tribal deity. We'd be in the same rut as Israel, who for generations they failed miserably at trying to keep all the laws. We're always going to fall short, 100% of the time. None of us are perfect here. Our default is that we'll worship ourselves. Our default is that we'll worship our comfort and our desires more than worshiping God. Friends, we need the perfect sacrifice. We need the perfect priest. And that's why God sent Jesus for us. And so you read from Hebrews chapter 9. I've got this on the screen for us as well. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. 
the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? How much more? See, Jesus came for us to be the perfect priest. He came to be the perfect leader who walks before us, who leads us and points us to God and came to be the perfect sacrifice as well to give his own life, to shed his own blood on the cross. So all of humankind, past, present and future, who put our faith in him can receive the forgiveness and the salvation that our souls so desperately need. He is the sacrifice that dies in our place. And so our worship doesn't start with our sacrifices. It starts with acknowledging God. It starts with acknowledging faith, having faith in his grace, that he gave the best and the most ultimate sacrifice for us in Jesus. Israel, the people, they failed. The priests failed. We fail all the time on our own, right? By our own, our own devices. God provided a better way for us so that we can know him and we can come before him in proper worship and give him the honor he's deserving of. When we look at Jesus, he is the ultimate sacrifice. He does away with sin. He was sinless. And so authentic worship begins with acknowledging that. No matter how many good deeds you've done this, no matter how much you know your Bible, and no matter how much you go to church and think you're morally good, you're still fleshy. (laughs) You're still human. Sin still exists in our hearts. We still have to go through that battle day by day. We need a greater sacrifice. And it's been given to us in Jesus. Perfect, holy, and sinless. How good is that? How good is our God who knows our hearts and says, I'm going to provide a way for you, a way for you to know that I love you, that you can also know me and have a relationship with me, that you can even have eternal life. God does that for us. How good is that? And while this is true, what does God desire? How does he call us to respond to this new identity that we can be his loved, treasured people, saved by grace? He calls us to, be, to live our lives as sacrifices. He calls us to be priests as well. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into light. You who are Christians, you, if you call yourself a Christian, you've been made God's special possession. You've been made a royal priesthood. We now represent God to the world around us. Do you know that you have that responsibility, that privilege? How will we lead our world to worship our God? How will we point people through the way that we live, through the way that we speak, our actions? It's a great responsibility, friends, but it's also a great privilege. Romans 12 also tells us something. It's in the next slide. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, we've received mercy, to offer your bodies, the sacrifice, the sacrifice language, right? to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Have you ever thought about that? When you think about worshiping God, that you, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. That's authentic worship, friends. Not half-hearted it's not, it's not a facade. We don't worship and make sacrifices to earn God's favor either. We do it because we've received it already. We've received his mercy, it says. We don't make sacrifices because, we have to, uh, because God forces us to or we're cursed. We make sacrifices because we get to. 
because we know God, we know His goodness, and He's so worthy of it. We know a God who loves us, a God who is worthy of our worship, worthy of our whole lives, worthy of everything. Friends, is that how you see God? Is that how you see your life that's been saved by Him, a living sacrifice to Him? Because if you do, that should change everything. It should change the way you see your worship. If we're Christians who truly worship, then there is no such thing as a Sunday Christian. You might have heard of that before. You might even identify as a Sunday Christian. There's no such thing. You're either a Christian or you're not. You're either an everyday Christian or you're not. If we're Christians, our lives don't revolve around us. It revolves around Jesus, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. If we're Christians who truly worship God, we'll see that God is worthy of our entire lives. My life belongs to Him. Yet the statistics in Australia tell us what? It tells something very interesting. In the last census, 2016, the last census, over 50% of Australians claim Christianity as their religion. Right? So that's about 12.5 million people claim that they're Christian. Yet, are they in churches every given Sunday? You know, the statistics say only 17% of that 50% go to church regularly. And that regularly is classified as once a month. And only 7% of that population are actively involved. 7% of that 50% are actively involved and practice their Christian faith. Tell me, do you think that's authentic worship? If we think God doesn't call us to, to be involved with our church, to love our church family, to know Him and have this thing that we do every Sunday, corporate worship. See, the reality is many don't see worship equating to sacrifice. I know that the majority of Christians will accept the message of grace and love, oh, God loves me, that's great, but do very little and live a life that does not reflect the worship of the one who offers it to them. And just like Israel, just like the people and the priests, we too, don't we, have a small view of God. We compartmentalize Him into this little area, this little box in our mind that is reserved for Sundays. It's half-hearted, isn't it, wouldn't you say? It's scary to think that we often have that same mindset as Israel. God is only worth our leftovers. He's not actually worth anything that would cost us something. We'll give Him what we're comfortable with, as soon as, you know, but as soon as we feel a little bit of a pinch on our livelihoods, then we start hesitating, don't we? We back away. We start thinking, oh, actually, God might not be worth it after all. Don't we all at some point in our faith, right? We come to church and we think, oh, there's a five-minute break. <laughs> I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want to be hospitable right now. Oh, the church is asking for money again. Oh, uh, this, this church might not be for me. Oh, the church is asking me to serve. Oh, the church, uh, I don't want to commit to this church. Maybe I shouldn't do on board. <laughs> we freak out. We get low-key anxious, scared, we want to run, we stop showing up. But is the church, is that the church asking or is that God asking? Is this how we worship God? Do we know the God that we worship? Do we know He's the one who's worthy of that worship? But we go to church when it suits our schedules, don't we? We serve when it suits our comfort. We get involved and, and, and go on mission when it suits our calendar. And, and, and when we look at God, He's not a priority at all. See, I get it. It's so much easier, isn't it? To, to plan my schedule around my comfort and my busy schedule. I get that. Uh, there's a classic Simpsons episode. This is a 90s reference. 
You guys probably weren't born then. But there's a classic Simpsons episode where Homer decides not to go to church. If you remember this episode, he has a conversation with God, this, this father being. And God is like, you know, I'd rather be watching football too than going to church. That's what God says to Homer, right? I get that. We justify it. God, you know, he's all right. He's all right if I, if I don't go to church, if I don't get involved. We tell ourselves that, don't we? Church is online now. We can just stay at home. I can skip church. I don't need to show up. No one's going to notice. I can listen to it on, on the podcast at double speed to save me time even. Once a month, that's enough. I can just show my face. God will be okay. I'm tired anyways. God's forgiving. Staying in bed sounds good. What if we instead we make God our first commitment in our schedules and say, okay, I'm blocking this out in my calendar each week. I'm going to be at church. I'm going to be at my missional community group each week, midweek to love my church family, to worship God with them. I'm going to sacrifice my time. I'm going to sacrifice my energy to serve. Even if I find it a little bit difficult, even if it's a little uncomfortable, I'm going to use the abilities that God has given to me to love my church family, to love the newcomer that comes each week. What if those were sacrifices we were making as a picture of worship to God, giving our time and our comfort? Or I get it for some, it might be our finances. It's so much easier to plan our budget, isn't it? Our finances around our own needs. How do you do it? I don't know about you, but it's so easy to just sit down and put aside the money first for your rent and your mortgage. Put aside some money for your, your holidays. You need to put that aside first. Then you put aside money for your groceries and then your bills, and then this amount for leisure. And then, you know, if you have any extra, you might save it for early retirement, hopefully. What's left over? You might have a little bit of change left over for God. That's all he's worth. As long as I give a little, I've ticked that box, I've given to the collection each week. Rather than asking first, how am I going to do my budget so I can portion firstly to God? Believing it all comes from Him anyways. Because I use my, before I use my finances on myself. What if we saw our giving as a sacrifice? That it caused a pinch on our lifestyles because God gets our first fruits. God gets it first. He gets the number one spot on our finance list. Yeah, it might mean that you don't retire early, friends. But it means you're generous today. It means that you get to give your finances that God has blessed with you today. See, Malachi addresses this very topic of tithing later on in a couple of weeks. For others, it might be something else. We let our lives revolve around our career, our work, our ambitions rather than God. So we'll move cities, we'll move states, we'll move countries because that's what's best for me now at my stage of life. I'll get more experience, I'll get more status, I'll get more followers. God can wait. I'll be more committed to God and his people and his mission when I've done everything on my bucket list. Or our families, and our families are good and great gifts, just like money is, just like holidays, all that stuff. It all comes from God, but often we put our families above God too. Our relationships, we want to get married first. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, poof, I'm, I want to lose my virginity, I want to play around first before I, I commit to God. You know, if you know, you know. For families, you know, with newborns even, it's hard to be at church, I get that. It's hard to be at church to serve God during the season. Serving God right now might look like serving your family. It's a rough season. There are hard sleep schedules and fatigue. But as you learn to parent, as you grow in parenting, growing together as a family, keep asking the question, what will it look like for my family to worship God? What will it look like for us together to worship God, even my kids? How can my kids serve God, whether they're a newborn or a toddler or a teenager? What will it look like for God to be at the center of our family commitments and priorities, being part of a covenant church family here? Will you be as committed in your worship, in your service, in your generosity, in your hospitality? You know, I think parenting is a, it's a great gift that we get to have kids. We get to bring them along on the journey to worship God with us. 
Ultimately, we all in this room need to question our own hearts. What are we willing to, to, to sacrifice? What sacrifices am I making for God? Or am I just giving him my leftovers? Am I just coming to him half-heartedly, doing that piano practice half an hour before I go to church? We can tick all the boxes. We can appear to do the right thing. But, can, but we, we can still treat God's name with contempt. Friends, are we truly worshipping? God desires a heart of humility, of ongoing repentance, where we acknowledge whose name is truly worthy of the throne in our lives. And this isn't a question I'm asking the person next to you. It's a question I'm asking you. It's a question I need to ask myself. Is God on the throne over our lives? There are so many things in my own heart that I need to repent of constantly. that obstacles to authentic God-centered worship. And I've got to keep coming back to this question. What are the sacrifices I'm going to make for God because He's worthy of them? I'm not doing it for my name. I'm doing it for his. Now, I know many of us right now might be groaning inside. You might be thinking, oh, this is not the week I should have come to church. Serving Jesus is such an inconvenience. It's a drag. I have better things to do. It's a bit of a chore, to be honest. Loving people, oh, I'm an introvert. Serving church, oh, I don't know. I could do things at home. Using my home to do hospitality, oh, it's my castle. I don't want anyone to come in. Having to think of others, giving my hard-earned money to church, we become resentful. And you know what's happening at that moment? We're treating God's name with contempt. That he isn't worthy of all that and more. We diss God. Our friends, we need to reevaluate our hearts, don't we? Who is on the throne? Honestly, it should feel like a pinch on our lifestyle because your life is a living sacrifice to God. It means you might have to adjust your schedule. You might have to make sacrifices for your, for your work and your career. You might need to play sport at a different time, whatever it might be. Readjust your budget, your spendings, whatever it might be. But you know what? We do it because God is worth it. We do it out of the joy of salvation that we have because we have one life to live. And so in this life, as we take the role of being God's priests, as we take the role of giving our lives as a sacrifice, Will we honor and worship God as he calls us to? Is your view of God small? Or will you make him big over your life? See, Malachi, he gives us his message. God's name will be great amongst the nations. Our God, who is the sovereign king, is also the God who calls us in to draw near. And when we put this big God into perspective, it changes the way you think about God and what he's worth, doesn't it? We can see that if he's... If, we, we can give him the best today because the best is yet to come. He's a big God. And so why are we not giving our best to him? Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for being our God who loves us, the God who has given us the greatest sacrifice of all. You took the initiative to send your son Jesus to our world and onto a Roman cross to die for our sin. And for that, we're thankful. For that, we know your love, we know your mercy, we know your compassion and grace. We are so undeserving of that, Lord. But you pour that love upon us anyways. And so, Lord, I pray that as we reflect on who you are, that you are a good and great God, that you are a big God, not a small God contained in small spaces, but a big God that's sovereign over all and sovereign over our lives. May we live lives that are pleasing to you. May we make sacrifices for the gospel because they echo into eternity 
Help us to be a people, Lord, that uh, live, that reflect your glory, live pointing people to the good news of Jesus, living lives that model the gospel. I do pray, Lord, that you'll do that work in us by your Spirit. Be with us. Help us to fight against our sin, our default, our comfort. Help us to live lives that are sacrificial, but also live in joy, joyful sacrifice, knowing you're worth it. You're so worth it. So we do pray for that in your son's name. Amen.